Cassie, are you going to be delivering any of those packages? She's a pilot. I don't know if you know that or not, but she could actually take some of those in a plane. She got her pilot's license before her driver's license. So if you need a quick trip, uh, I guess contact Cassie. My name's Jeremy. I'm not a pilot. And she says she feels nervous speaking in front of people. I think I would feel nervous trying to fly a plane, but... Here we are. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to today's worship service. We're in Nehemiah chapter 6, and I want to begin today's service with two verses that I think moved in the heart of Nehemiah and are hopefully moving our people forward as well. This is simply assurance from the psalmist, so you don't have to look these up. You can hold your finger in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, but hear the word of the Lord to you today. Psalm 34 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Today, in keeping with my tradition, I'd like to begin by starting today's service with a little bit of a sermon with a little bit of a story. Now, I have to put in a disclaimer because uh, it's close to home, it's about my dad, but I don't want it to come across as bragging because it has, in some ways, nothing to do with me. Something like um, in a superhero story, if there are innocent bystanders sitting there on the side of the road when the bus is out of control and about to cream into the crowd and Superman swoops down, picks it up and carries it away, um, and they say, wow, look at the great thing he did. That's what I'm doing this morning, is just saying, wow, look at this really cool thing that my dad did. So, that being said, uh, my story goes like this. Uh, my dad is a bit of an unusual fellow, to say the least. He um, was born in the western plains of Nebraska, son of an auto mechanic in a small, um, barely on the map sort of town. And yet, God gifted him with a uh, significant degree of intellectual prowess. He's a smart guy. And so growing up in this small town, you know, that eventually that uh, he begins to realize he's a bit different from everybody else. But uh, what really makes a big change in his life is when a pastor comes to visit their family and leads his parents to the Lord. And seeing him self-develop intellectually. He decides to follow his pastor's course and go to that university that his pastor went to. And he goes to this university and his mind grows and he pursues higher studies. And eventually he realizes the only place for a person like him seems to be in academia. So he uh, gets a terminal degree, a PhD in Old Testament, which uh, meant that he had to learn both Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And then he did his um, dissertation in Ecclesiastes, one of the you know, most intense books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So he pursued this course, and of course, after you've gone through so much, the only thing you can do with something, a degree like that is teach. And so he uh, begins to teach. And during that time, he had met my mom, they got married, my brother and I came along, and now there's a family going along uh, through this journey. He's made it through, he's starting his career, he's spent years and years and years and years in school, and he's beginning to teach, now middle-aged. 
Well, about six months into that um, teaching, he begins to realize that God is calling him to something entirely different. God basically, out of blue, comes to my dad and says, Hey, I want you to drop everything you've ever done and completely switch and change career paths. You don't have any financial support. Uh, You're completely on your own. You've never made a lot of money. And now I'm calling you to spend a ton of money in medical school. And my dad saw this call, and he responded. And as a result, he and my mom dropped basically everything they were at, and then they moved to Rochester, Minnesota, where my dad went to medical school and did his residency, and then the other special things that doctors do after that. He finished all that up, and then he went to Springfield, Missouri, and began practicing, where in high school, my dad started earning money, you know? And it was an interesting journey as I I watched him do this because I can remember all this stuff. And as a little kid, you don't think anything of it. But then as an adult, you look back and you go, oh, my goodness, are you serious? Mom and dad, you did what? You guys are crazy. How did you do that? How are you still together? How are you rationally sane? How did this work? This is nuts. And I can look back on that and I see my dad going through residency at Mayo Clinic and see him, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week as a resident. Then having the family plus the debt from his Ph.D., he has to work additional hours as a night watchman at the Ramada Inn. And then he also is an active Christian, so he serves in our local church as the lay youth pastor. And then I see him sitting out on the porch in Minnesota at night with a blanket wrapped around him and my mom while they have their quality time together, which was probably his only opportunity to sleep. And then after he comes back from serving the weekend in the ER or wherever, he takes me and my brother fishing on Saturday. I look back on this and I say, wow, how in the world did you do that? You know, when you go back to your parents later in life, you have this opportunity, hopefully, to ask them these questions. And my dad's answer, he's like, well, you just keep going. You don't quit. You just keep going. Don't quit, no matter what. And I can remember him saying that to us all the way up, as Lobdell's never quit, Lobdell's never quit, Lobdell's never quit. And after a while, you get kind of tired of hearing, you know, your dad saying these sayings that he say, it says. But then when you get older, you look back and go, wow, man, was that profound. Just to get out of bed every single morning, put one foot in front of the other, no matter what happened the day before. That's significant. And I watch my dad walk through this process, and I see him as a great, in my mind, a great, great man of God for that. And as I look now at Nehemiah chapter 6, I see a very similar uh, feature, characteristic, in this biblical character, and that is Nehemiah simply never quits. He just keeps going, no matter what. So what I want to do for you this morning then, as we move into chapter 6, we're uh, much of the way through the book, so I want to just give you that big overarching theme again, remind you of where we've been, briefly walk you through the plot up until this point, and then we'll jump into chapter 6. So, big idea, big idea is this, Nehemiah, it's God's story for God's glory, much like the rest of the scripture. Gospel of John's not the book of John, it's the book of Jesus. The book of Nehemiah is not the book of Nehemiah, it's the book of Yahweh. He is the faithful and covenant-keeping, great and awesome God. Verse 5, chapter 1. This is the theme that moves it through. 
So it is not Nehemiah's story, but God's story. Now, the reason that that is significant, you have to hear this, is because if I sit here and say to you, hey, Nehemiah is a really great guy. Cool. We should be really great guys too. All right. Yay. Woohoo. Go home. Right. Eh. Yeah. There's a lot of great guys in Scripture, right? There's a lot of great people in history. Well, Beethoven was great. You're never going to see Beethoven reproduced in this life. I could study classical music for the rest of my life and I wouldn't be as good as him. Wouldn't matter. His genius was recognized from a very early stage. He's already changed the world twice by the time he's my age. What's going on? Totally different call. He's a great guy, but so what? Nehemiah, however, is a totally different scenario because Nehemiah is not the story of Nehemiah. It's the story of Nehemiah's God. And so it moves this story from the land of historical inspiration to a current reality. In other words, this is a real possibility for you. Not to build a wall in Jerusalem, but to have the work of God occur in your life the same way it did in Nehemiah's. Because Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever then the story in that sense doesn't change. Yes, the names are different, and yes, the projects or tasks are different, but the story is still moving forward in the same way. So in the way that God moved in Nehemiah's life, so too can he move in yours and mine. Because God is the same. The stories and actors and projects, they change. But the theme consistent throughout, is all, throughout it all remains the same. So here we are then in Nehemiah chapter 6, watching the hand of Almighty God move this story forward. The faithful and covenant-keeping God. And this is what he does. He comes to a cupbearer, regular old guy, a kicker, so to speak. He says, hey, I want you to rebuild the wall. The cupbearer is like, whoa, that's a big job, not so sure. And he's like, yeah, but I'll be with you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of it. And Nehemiah says, okay. If you're in it, you're going to do this thing that I'm in. I'm going to connect it to your covenant. This is your people, your city. You are my God. It's your law. And if you apply it, I'll trust you. The Lord says, okay, watch me work. And Nehemiah goes forward and all of a sudden, boom, papers are stamped in hand. He's got all the supplies and material he needs. He's going back to Jerusalem. He surveys the city and the people begin to work. Woohoo! Moving forward. But as you know, anytime something's going good, the devil's going to do his best to mess it up. Opposition comes. Nehemiah responds. People give him trouble from without, and people give him trouble from within. He begins to deal with and work through those issues. Now in chapter 6, we're moving up to the completion of the wall. We're near the end of the project. And these guys, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, are going to make one last ditch effort to pull the plug. This is their final attempt, so to speak, to destroy the wall before Nehemiah can finish it. So Nehemiah, chapter 6, the story of Nehemiah's God, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that point I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, 
Sambalot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Hey, come, let's meet together at this place in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it, this is what was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've even gone so far as to set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. Now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come, let us counsel together. (laughs) Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say has been done. And you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now Nehemiah prays, Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So, here's the summary and point. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they had perceived that this work had been accomplished by the hand of our God. Now, the way I want to move this story forward for you today is basically like this. There are two big sections of this chapter. The first is the longest. It's the three plots. The second is a bit shorter, just the summary completion at the end. So what we'll do is we'll look at the three plots individually, the mutinous, last mutinous attempts of the opposition to destroy the work and kill Nehemiah, and then we'll look at the completion. So the first plot was centered around the plain of Ono. It is to lure Nehemiah away and kill him. The second plot was around the open letter, and this was to pressure and scare Nehemiah And the third one had to do with this guy by the name of Shemaiah. And what they did was bribed him in order to betray Nehemiah. So you have the attempt of luring and killing, pressure and scaring, and bribing and betraying. Sounds like uh, something on the Sopranos or something. I don't know. But here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, plot number 1. The attempt to lure Nehemiah. 
verse 2, it says this, Sambalot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. Now, I want to show you a little map of this area. You have to put on your glasses or look close to see what I'm talking about. But up there around the last O of Ono, near the Mediterranean Sea on the west side, you perhaps can see a little tiny red dot near the town of Joppa. That red dot is around the area or the plain of Ono. Now that's important because the plain is flat and it's a, uh, there's no protection in that area. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is nearer to the Dead Sea, more to the east in the center of the land of Israel, up in the hill country. So you can't run chariots easily through this area. You can hide out in the hills and be safe. And if you build a wall around your city, anyone who's going to attack it is going to have to come up the hill, over the wall, and you're going to have a significant um, tactical advantage raining down all sorts of stuff on their heads. So Nehemiah is up in Jerusalem, and the opposition or the enemy is inviting him to come down to the plain of Ono. Now, interesting tidbit for um, people who like trivia. This, anytime you hear uh, Jerusalem, often people will say go up to Jerusalem or come down. And for us, usually up is north. And here you can see that Ono is a bit to the northwest. So how is it that they come uh, down from Jerusalem? Well, it's an elevation thing, right? So if you go to old churches, what happens is church buildings that have been there a long time, they always build them up high and there's lots of steps. Why? Because they're symbolizing Jerusalem is up high. You go up to worship. So that aside, Plain of Ono is down. It is flat and it's an easy place to attack someone. They're vulnerable. There's no place to hide. And consequently, these guys are like, hey, Nehemiah, how about uh, coming down by yourself to the Plain of Ono? I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I saved that for you guys. <laughs> I didn't even use it on the first crowd. I knew they'd be too asleep. All right. <laughs> the plane of Ono, are, they're lure, he's trying to lure them out there and kill them. They want to hurt him. And Nehemiah sees through this right away, and he's like, no, I can't, I'm not going down to that. And so you look at his response, and he says, look, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down to you. There is no way I'm going to lower myself to be easily distracted by something that's far less important. Bing, 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 bing. Does that sound like a good application point? <laughs> Here we go. This is how it applies to you. Look. Lord may not have called you to build the walls of Jerusalem, I get that, but the Lord has called you to something very specific, and it's an important work. You may not be Nehemiah, but you're one of God's children, and you are in relationship with him, and that means he wants you to keep going and not quit. And there's going to be a lot of distractions in your life, and they're going to try to lure you away from the important thing at hand, and you need to be able to say to them, hey, I'm busy here. I'm doing the Lord's work, and there's no way I'm getting distracted and coming down to you. God has called me to this thing, whatever it may be. And I'm not going to quit. Not for something like that. Hey, look, if you're a student in high school, you're growing up, you're learning. 
You're trying to obey your mother and father and honor and please them so you can grow up to become a mature person and, and a man or a woman of God. So focus in on your studies. Don't get distracted. Keep going. Don't quit. If you're a college student, you're preparing for the rest of your life. You're figuring out who you are and who God has made you to be. Keep going. Don't quit. If you're a single and unmarried, save yourself for your spouse. God is calling you to something. Keep going. Stay pure. Don't quit. If you're married and you don't have children yet, you're perhaps um, preparing for a different life phase. Work on your marriage. Don't quit. You've got kids. Hey, this is a busy time, right? Don't get distracted. Focus in. Don't quit. If you're beyond that phase and you're mid-career, you're focusing in on your colleagues and all the other stuff that's going on around you. Focus in. Don't quit. God has called you to something. You've completed that phase. Now you're in the retirement phase. Things are changing. It's a transition. But you have the opportunity to serve God with all of your years of experience and all of your resources and all your knowledge and all your expertise. Don't quit. You're not done. Keep going. Don't quit. God has called you to something specific, and I have no idea what that means for you in your life, how he has gifted you, what passions he's given you, and what resources and tools or where he's positioned you, but you're in a spot that he wants you to be in, so keep going and don't quit. God is calling you to something. What is it? You figure that out for yourself, and then you go at it full bore and don't quit. Verse 4 goes on and it says, Look, they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Listen to this statement here. If you want to write it down, feel free. Real victory is born of consistency. Real victory is born of consistency. It's not enough to win once. <laughs> right, Chuck? Just checking. You've got to win over and over again all throughout the series, all the way to the end. Real victory is born of consistency. Resisting temptation once, great. But you get to resist it for the rest of your life. Don't quit. Keep fighting. Never give up. The true test is your average over time. Not a single instance, but the integrity and character you developed over a long period of time. It is a lifelong process. Keep plotting. From the early 1700s, there was a young preacher by the name of John Wesley. They found his uh, diary and journals, and it's kind of interesting to read how it, things progressed. Back then, they had Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. So then, this is what he wrote. Sunday, May 5th, preached in St. Andrew's in the morning, was asked not to come back anymore. Preached in St. John's in the evening. Deacon said, get out, stay out. Sunday, May 12th, following week, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday, May 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's Church. Deacons called a special meeting, said I couldn't return. Sunday, May 19th, preached on street and was kicked off. Sunday, May 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as the bull was loose during the service. <laughs> Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached on the edge of town, kicked off the highway. 
Sunday evening, June 2nd, preached in a pasture and 10,000 people came out. Don't quit. Don't quit. Number one, they will try to lure and distract you. Keep going. Don't quit. Number two, they will pressure and attempt to scare you with public opinion. Surely you would not want everybody else to think differently than you. Could you handle being a minority? This is a majority culture, right? We're a democracy. The majority wins in the end, right? Is the majority always right? What is the majority? The majority is just the majority. That's all it is, right? doesn't mean they're right. If Moses would have listened to the majority, the children of Israel would still be in Egypt. Here we are in this letter of public opinion. It says in uh, verse 6, it was an open letter. What that means is this, is that in our society, if we take a letter, uh, we are going to go out to our mailbox and we'll seal it and stamp it and put it in. And we're assuming that nobody's going to open it. In their society, the way they did it is they roll up the um, parchment or scroll or vellum and they give it to a courier. And if they don't want anybody to read it, you wrap a string around it. Then you take some hot wax, you put it on the knot so that it dries, and then you stamp it with your seal impressed upon the wax so that the person who receives it knows that it is sealed by you, it hasn't been opened, and the only way they can read it is that they break the seal and open it up. On the other hand, if you write an open letter like you have most of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, it's meant to be circulated amongst the people and the various churches will read it out loud and say, hey, look, here's a letter. So-and-so wrote it. Let's read it. So there's no tie, there's no stamp, there's no seal. It is an open letter. Well, here, for the purpose of currying public opinion and to pressure Nehemiah, they write this incredible insidious letter and listen to what it says. Here we go, verse 6. This is read with all the small-town politics Um, that I can muster. It says this, It is reported, all the women are saying, or whatever, among the nations, there's been a lot of talk, everybody's saying, and Geshem also says, well, if Geshem says, it must be right, right? I mean, he's Geshem. He's a big guy. That you Jews intend to rebel. Don't tell me what your intentions are. Let me tell you what your intentions are. I will redefine your intent. That is why you're building the wall. Now, according to these reports, I know what's going on. You wish to become their king. You've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you. There's a king. Let me warn you now. The king's going to hear about this. The king will hear. I'm going to tell him. So come now. Let us take counsel together. Be reasonable. Nehemiah, any reasonable person would be able to see your true intent. The king could find out. Come on. Come talk. Come talk to me if you're reasonable. Nehemiah's response, you don't know me. 
You have no idea who I am. How can you pretend to read my thoughts? Only God knows my heart. What do you think you're doing? Nehemiah sees right through their front and he calls their bluff. He says in verse 8, you're inventing this out of your own mind. You're crazy. This has nothing to do with reality. You're nuts. You don't know me. Back off. Come on. Then his next, his next step is this. He says, Lord, I see what they're trying to do. All they want to do is frighten us. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Here's what's happening. He's confronted with these people who are trying to redefine his intent. They're trying to pressure him with public opinion. Everybody thinks this. You should think this too. Everybody's talking. You'll get in trouble. You better do this. Come on, Nehemiah. Where are you at? Come talk to us. And Nehemiah's like, you know what? I'm not even going to engage. Everything you say is a lie. And I'm going to go talk to God. Here we go. And that's so instructive for us because this is a great way to handle this type of um, confrontation. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't say, okay, let's, let's talk. He stops. He refuses to engage. But he calls their bluff. At the same time, he doesn't get caught up in the arguments. He doesn't go after every single point. He doesn't say, no, I don't want to become king because you actually see that I've got the king's letters and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't engage in any of that. He refuses to engage in the argument, but he steps back and says, what you're saying is not true. And so what I say to you this morning then, if someone confronts you like that, you can do the same thing. It's okay for you to say, hey, that's not true. That's not true. God's a God of truth. And he wants you to tell the truth. And sometimes if you're quiet, that means you're just going along with it. At some point, you've got to stand up and say, that's not true. Stop. Full stop. You don't necessarily have to get into the argument and get dragged down by all the garbage. You just stop there and say, that is not true. Then what do you do? Well, you take it up with him who knows what's true. And you say, Lord, uh, what they're saying is not true. Can you address that? You want to help me out here, God? Because I know you're a God of truth and I'm appealing to you, not to them. They're wrong. You're right. God help. Strengthen our hands. You get involved here, God, because I'm not enough. And there you go. Next time someone confronts you like that, there's your opportunity. You say, that's not true. Dear God, please help. Call their bluff and then pray. Call their bluff and pray. So, to recap then, here's where we're at so far. We've looked at the first attempt to lure him away. And he said, no, 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 no. Not going there. Can't do that. I'm doing something more important. I'm going to keep going and not quit. Number two, they try to pressure and scare him, but he calls their bluff and asks for God's help. Now, number three, the final one that they attempt is to bribe someone on the inside. They're going to try to get someone to stab him in the back. Verse 10 says, Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Metabal, who was confined to his home, he said, hey, let's go meet in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. And I've got some inside information for you. Here you go. They're coming to kill you tonight, by night. 
when I was in high school, um, one time, I, I, well, one time I had some friends. I had friends more than once, I think. <laughs> Maybe one time I had some friends. I had some friends, and my, our parents weren't friends yet, but we children were friends with these guys, and so their parents invited our parents over for dinner. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Let's go over for dinner, and I'll be friends. That'll be fun. And so me and my friends and my brother and his, his brother were playing, and at the end of the night, we're like, oh, wasn't that great? We loved it. That was so much fun. And my mom and dad were just like, we're like, what? You didn't have fun? They're like, no. We said, why not? They said, because they're trying to sell us something. I said, ah, what do you mean? They're like, well, they invited us over for dinner, but in reality, it was a pyramid scheme. And they wanted us to be, you know, under them and to get people under them and that way they could make money. And they thought, since, you know, I'm a doctor, that <laughs> they would have an opportunity. They didn't realize I spent 25 years in college and have half a million in debt. <laughs> We're not buying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so they walked away disappointed because what happened was someone invited them over for dinner and then it was a bait and switch. That's what happened in Nehemiah. He was invited over to his friend's house for dinner. They're hanging out, and all of a sudden, his friend's like bait and switch. By the way, Nehemiah, uh, I've got something to tell you. There's people coming to kill you. Think Nehemiah doesn't know that already? <laughs> like, oh, they're coming at night. Let's go hide in the temple together. But Nehemiah is more familiar with the law of God than that. He studied his precepts day and night, and he knows that nobody goes into the sanctuary unless you're a Levite. He's not invited in there, he can't go beyond the veil. What's this guy doing trying to tempt me to sin? Oh, wait. He's really not on my team after all, is he? He wants to lure me out, lead me away, and along the path, guess what's going to happen? End of story. They bribed him. One of my own men. Good grief. Verse 12. I understood and saw. Tobiah and Sambla had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they, get, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. His response then is what? Should such a man as I run away? You think I'm supposed to be afraid of you guys? Could I go in the temple and live? I'm not going to go in there. He refuses to run. They're trying to scare him. They bribe somebody on the inside. He's been betrayed. And he says, no, not going to go for it. I ain't afraid. Not going to run. And then he does the same thing he did earlier. He prays, but this time not for strength, this time instead for justice. It's okay to pray for this too. Verse 14, he says, remember Tobiah and Sambala, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Look, do you pray for your enemies? Yes, you pray that they'll repent. Because our God is gracious and he's willing to allow them to do that. But if they don't, what else is our God? He's just. And you can't get away with sin. So if you don't accept his grace, then you get his justice. One way or another. And it's okay to pray for both. 
Nehemiah says, God, lead them to repent. And if they don't, boy, you take care of it. It's not my job to judge. It's not my job to avenge. But that's your job, Lord. So do your job. God, remember them. Remember them. Three plots, three attempts, three responses. The first one is to lure Nehemiah away. People may try and come to lure you away. Just like Nehemiah, you need to refuse to come down. From whatever work God has called you to do, you say, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm in it for the long haul. Others may try to pressure and scare you. People will try to get you to be dissuaded by public opinion. Call their bluff. You say, no, that's not true. God, strengthen our hands. Finally, someone from the inside, perhaps even in your own house, may betray you. But don't run. Pray for justice. Keep going. Don't quit. For the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs to it and is safe. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in 52 days. And look what happened. Here's the end of the story. When all of our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid. They were trying to make us afraid, but now look who's afraid. And they fell greatly in their own esteem. They thought they were great. Let us show them who truly is. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Look, when you keep going and you don't quit, then God goes forth and honors his word. When you are faithful, God is faithful. When you connect it to the covenant, he honors his promise. When you believe and move forward in faith, God comes through. And as a result, people outside of your circle will see the hand of the Lord at work in your life. And as a result, they will fear him and fall in their own esteem. What happens then? Well, God's story for God's glory is going forth. He's getting all the credit, he's getting all the honor, and he's getting all the praise. And that's the point. When you keep going and you don't quit, people perceive the hand of God. Now, as I told you earlier, my dad's a doctor, and um, he was actually a cardiovascular anesthesiologist. What that means is this. When it comes time for the heart transplant, he's the guy that cools you off, turns you off, waits till the surgeon takes one out, puts the other in, then restarts you again, warms you back up, and brings you to life. So he has your heart in his hand, okay? What that means is that my dad, when he got... Um, when, okay, so I jumped ahead, but here's, here's the point. When he, he practiced for 20 years successfully like this, and then his, his desire was to go into his, his heartbeat, his whole time is to go into missions full time. But for a while, he's got to pay off the debt and then he's got to raise his own funds. And then he started doing like missions and medicine half time. And then about 
59, 60 years old, he's at the point where he can become fully self-supported and go do missions full-time. So coming back from one of these part-time mission trips, what happens is he's walking through the airport and he gets lost. Completely and totally lost. And he thinks, well, it's been a long trip. You know, I'm tired on medicines from malaria and blah, blah, blah. Get a good night's sleep, we'll be fine, we get home. Then he goes to the hospital and he comes out of surgery one day and he looks in the hallway and they're all, you know, white with all the same doors. And he's lost again. He's looking around. All of a sudden, a nurse says, Dr. Lobdell, um, you okay? Realizes he's not. Turns himself in to one of his neurosurgeon buddies or whatever and they look over him. Turns out, at 60 years old, he's got early onset Alzheimer's. Top of his career. PhD, MD, specialist, male clinic, ready to serve God, full-time, missions, completely self-supported. God says, no. Next day, resign, keys are gone. He's a stay-at-home person for the rest of his life. Now he's wearing diapers. And that's my dad. Should such a man as he run away? This is the final fight. He could have kissed my mom goodbye that morning and said, you know what? I've had a good life. I know it's coming. I've seen it a thousand times before. I understand Alzheimer's is not just losing your memory. Your whole body shuts down. Before long, it's bed sores and diapers and drool for me. Perhaps today, instead of stopping somebody else's heart, I should just stop my own. He could have walked into work and pulled out a canister, one simple injection, and bang, done. No more fight. No more trouble, no more pain. He's done. Didn't do it. Didn't quit. Job chapter 1. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Dr. Lobdell fear God for no reason? Do you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased the land? But you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. Lord said to Satan, he's yours. Satan went out and struck him with a loathsome disease from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Dr. Lobdell sat in ashes. And in all of this, he did not sin. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What will come? I don't know. But when people trust God and refuse to quit, He comes through in big ways. 
and his hand is clearly seen, then others fall in their own esteem, and God gets the glory. It is his story. Young William Wilberforce, a guy in England at the end of the 1700s, after a long 10-year battle against the slave trade in England, was making no headway whatsoever. Frustrated one night, he opened his Bible and began to leaf through it. And out fell a small piece of paper written by John Wesley before his death. This letter from Jonathan Wesley said this, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might. Keep going. Don't quit. Midland Free, you are doing a great work of God. People will try to distract you. They will try to infiltrate you from the inside. They will try to strike fear in your heart through pressure of public opinion. Keep going. Don't quit. What's the end? I don't know. Nehemiah built the wall. But God is writing our story, and it's different from his. Same God, different story. His story for his glory in your life and mine, the life of our church. Keep going. Don't quit. Father, you're a good and gracious God. And we're asking and trusting that you will come through. Certainly there's opposition and difficulty in our lives and things we don't understand. We need your help. Give us the courage to stand, Father. Help us to keep going and not quit. We see great examples in the saints that have gone before us. William Wilberforce, John Wesley, my dad, many others. Lord, give us the courage and strength to keep going and not quit. In Jesus' name, amen.